The Church Times, in association with the Royal School of Church Music, will be holding a webinar on Monday the 19th of October on how hymns and liturgy have been affected by the pandemic. Tickets are £10 or £5 for Church Times subscribers and RSCM members. For more information and to book tickets, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash hymns hyphen and hyphen worship. Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week I'm joined by the historian and author Tom Holland. His previous books include Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic, Dynasty, The Rise and Fall of the House of Caesar, and Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, which he spoke to Andrew Brown about on this podcast last year, as well as in the paper. Today we're talking about a book of essays that Tom has edited, Revolutionary, Who Was Jesus? Why Does He Still Matter? It's published by SPCK and is available from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £16.99. There's also an extract from the book in this week's Church Times. Tom, uh, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me back. Can I start by asking really how this book came about? And was it a sort of natural follow on from Dominion in terms of theme? Um, well, it was it was um, actually uh, at a, a party where um, we had a discussion about um, I, I was asked about Dominion and said it was coming. And so I was asked, would I was, was I interested in the idea of a collection of essays about Jesus specifically. I was kind of intrigued by that because um, in Dominion, because it's a work of history, the focus is much more on the letters of Paul than the Gospels, because the letters of Paul, of course, are, are the earlier historical source. And that enabled me <laughs> to avoid the quagmire that is the issue of what the relationship of the um, Jesus of the Gospels might be to the historical Jesus, um, a topic on which I, I knew that I was not remotely qualified to advance an original opinion. Doing this book kind of felt like it was filling a gap that I was, I was conscious of. Um, and I, I just wanted to, to see, really to see what the range of opinions was. And I, I think that the, the collection does provide a, a fantastic array of opinions, some of which are, are almost kind of verge on the contradictory. But how did you approach the writers? There's a real diversity of re- religious beliefs, non-religious beliefs. Uh, we wanted um, the best and most stimulating collection of, of theologians we could get. I knew that we wanted a, um, a Muslim perspective on, on Jesus because he is, of course, uh, a Muslim prophet. I, I wanted um, people from both the left and the right. Um, so I essentially wanted as, as, as broad a range of responses as, as we could get. And I think that um, I think I think we did a good job in that. Just on the, the question of, of the Jesus of history. And I mean, it's always been talked about also the, the Christ of faith. But you talk, I think, in the introduction about whether drawn from life or a complete work of fiction, the portrait of Christ that the canonical gospels provide um, constitutes most influential literary achievement. I, I think the most the most remarkable literary achievement of all time really and in a way it cuts the entire Gordian knot because um, either the Gospels are the record of someone who was clearly remarkable enough to have um, merited these four different accounts or um, if if they bear no relation to um, somebody who actually existed, which I, I think is a, v- a very kind of extremist position, but one that some do hold to, then 
that only makes the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels even more astonishing, because you know, imagine going to um, going to a writer and saying, "Okay, well, I want you to give a portrait of um, a man who is simultaneously God," and um, this has got to be so convincing that um, people in two thousand years' time, in continents that you've never even heard of, will um, hold that this this portrait is convincing. And I think that um, that any writer would would find it a challenge. Um, still more writers whose um, Greek is not perhaps all that it might be. Um, so clearly not writers absolutely out of the top draw stylistically. So I, I, I think that, that that perspective provides um, enormous scope for analysing what exactly it is that um, the gospel writers are doing with the figure of Jesus, because it's clearly purely measured in terms of the impact that this portrayal has had on subsequent history, as the title of the um, of the book suggests, revolutionary. Of course, as Rowan Williams writes in his essay, in one in one important sense, every historical figure is a literary figure encountered through the medium of how others see them. Yes, yes, I think, I mean, absolutely. I think, and I think that that's something that anyone who writes about antiquity in particular is, it tends to be very alert to because um, so many of the sources um, that we, we have from antiquity and that we might be tempted to think of as being primary are in fact incredibly literary, be it Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus. These are all highly literary, highly crafted texts. And so um, the figures that we get within them are literary as much as they're historical. And I would say that that's true even of those who are writing autobiography of whom Julius Caesar perhaps would be the archetype, that the, the image of Caesar, and of course Julius Caesar refers to himself in the third person, is, is a very artificial one, it's a very literary one. And so seen in that context, what the gospel writer is doing ceases to be quite as um, unusual as, as, as people might suspect. There's something that is going very much with the grain of um, our, our sources from antiquity, as well as embodying something obviously that's, that's, that's very transformative and new. You also discussed the introduction, you know, was Jesus a revolutionary and um, really come down on the side of, of yes, he was, because of the impact he's had on all of us in the West. Um, I'm also interested in what the writers in the book think of whether Jesus' teaching and actions, were they revolutionary? There seems to be a diversity of views among them. Yeah, so there's a, the, the, definitely a range of opinions on that. I think that it depends really whether you are focusing on the uh, the, the, the direct sources for um, Jesus' statements, parables, whatever, because if you do that, invariably, you can find um, uh, parallels in the contemporary literature that perhaps um, makes them seem less, less radical. But I think that, that when you put them all together and uh, you combine it with the portrait of Jesus, which is kind of unlike, I think, anything else that you get um, in, in the literature of the period, and then you place that in the context of the impact that it's had over the centuries and the millennia that follow his, his lifetime, then I think you get a different perspective. But, but as you say, part of the fascination of having a, a collection of essays is precisely that you do get a variety of perspectives of, right, you know, it's, it's again and again, the, the, the perspective on Jesus, as, as with so many historical figures, depends very much what your methodology is. And I think that that, that perhaps is peculiarly the case with, with New Testament studies. I was very interested in Amy Jullivine's Jewish perspective on, on Jesus. And she seems to be one of the people who's, who's arguing that a lot of the teaching isn't that revolutionary, particularly for Jews, when a lot of 
what he preaches about um, serving the poor and, and the weak is, is there in Deuteronomy. Um, I mean, could, could that be a sort of salutary corrective, do you think, to Christians who think that we were the first on the scene with some of this sort of teaching? Well, I, th- I mean, it's clear that, that, that Jesus is, is a Jew and that um, the first Christians are Jewish. And the decision in the second century not to go with the Marcionite perspective that what, what we might call the New Testament is a radical break from the old is decisive in joining the figure of Jesus to the inheritance of Hebrew scripture. And so the portrayal of Jesus as the fulfillment of um, Hebrew scripture and of prophecy obviously means that you have to situate him within that kind of moral, theological, poetic, mythic inheritance. Um, so and kind of what I mean that that if you if, if, if that is the perspective that you're bringing, if you're looking at Jesus, the figure of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels in the context of that inheritance of scripture, um, I guess Matthew is, is it, that's particularly the case. Then you're going to feel that this is a figure who is who, who is indeed um, very much um, emerging from that kind of flux of uh, Jewish the, Jewish opinion debate, um, uh, scriptural inheritance. The way that Jesus becomes revolutionary is that um, he gets reconfigured and understood in a way that is radically incompatible with traditional Jewish understandings of God. And it's that tension that, that then generates the kind of revolutionary impact, I think. And in Robin Gill's chapter on was Jesus an ethical revolutionary, I think I'm right saying he, he concludes he was in the sense that his teaching on love of enemies is something genuinely new and radical. Is that right? Yes, which which um, and it's it's often been pointed out that that of course this this combines with the, the Pauline idea that um, the the new covenant is written on the heart, and so that in in that sense um, it's possible for the commandments, those that instructions that Jesus gives, effectively to be impossible. <laughs> I mean, by definition, it's impossible to love your enemies because if you did, they wouldn't be your enemies anymore. But by imposing that as an obligation. It, it, it kind of becomes a, um, a democratic. It becomes impossible for anyone to fulfil that. And that, again, is part of the gear shift that, that means that Christianity evolves in a way that rabbinical Judaism, say, doesn't. And, and, and again, situates Jesus at the heart of that kind of shift. I, I think that it's um, the, the entirety of the New Testament is key to understanding the christian understanding of um of jesus because the figure of jesus in the gospels has to exist in the context of the um the metaphysical framing that paul provides him uh and it's that i think you know it's that really that marks jesus jesus out as as um this kind of transformative figure it's it's the the context that is provided above all by paul in the extract we're running by Amy Jo Levine this week's looking particularly at the parables. She writes, the parables prompt us to see the world otherwise. They help us to question our presuppositions. They activate not only imagination, but response. I'm just wondering what you thought the status of Jesus' parables sort of were in 21st century Western kind of secular society. You hear them referenced by politicians occasionally, you know, Jeremy Corbyn saying we won't walk by on the other side. But is it just sort of snippets out of context? I mean, is there general ignorance, do you think? Well, I, I, I think that they retain their power to shape geopolitics. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that the reason that Angela Merkel in 2015, whenever it was, allowed a million people from um, 
of a different religion, most of them, into Germany. Uh, I, I'm sure that the parable of the Good Samaritan massively lay behind that. I mean, she was she was raised in a in a, a pastor's household. That was what her father did. And the, the the simplicity and power of that story, the idea of someone who is not Jewish caring for a Jew beaten up on the road, I'm sure is what provided the the, the ultimate framework for what for what Merkel decided to do. And Again, having said that the, the Gospels are the most remarkable literary texts, there's a sense in which if you think of Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, as, a, as an author, he is the most astonishing short storyteller in history. I mean, the, 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 those stories have had a, a greater impact than any other collection of short stories you could, you could begin to list. And that's, again, is a kind of fascinating way to, to see him, to see Jesus as the great short storyteller. That kind of, I think, pays due homage to the impact that these tales have had. Now, having said that, um, and I, you know, I've just written a book, Dominion, on, on, on the kind of the enduring resonance and, and hold of Christianity, um, even in society that, uh, that, that may not be as Christian as it was. I do think that one of the changes in education that I mark between my own and those of my daughters is there has been a, a massive decline in biblical literacy uh, I my at school and at Sunday school was kind of brought up on the parables because of course they're designed to be accessible as accessible to children as to adults that's that's the reason of their power which is why you know they were always taught my children do not have that kind of they haven't been marinated in the parables in the way that I was and I, I suspect that that's true of um of, of students across this country perhaps more broadly across the west and i do think that um that that really does constitute a massive fraying of the 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 ropes that have traditionally joined the west to that christian inheritance and i do think that um if the church is anxious to um to keep people biblically literate um ensuring that that, that people at school still get to study the parables would would be my suggestion for how to do it you're speaking about dominion um in nick spencer's chapter there's a there's a point at which he, he disagrees with some of your argument in in dominion saying um the idea that our instinct to respect weak, weakness and recognize rights is because we're children of christianity and he says that fails to explain why the preaching of christ crucified should have had an impact in a classical world untainted by the christian legacy and then spencer talks of a universal moral order and that was the reason i just wanted to give you a bit of a right to reply to that um criticism well, I, I think that the idea of rights um, is is something that is implicit in the way that, that, that Christianity evolves over its first millennium. Um, and that category is not made explicit until the 12th century. So I think that that any attempt to um, to talk of the concept of rights before the 12th century is profoundly anachronistic. And one of the ways in which writing theology and history can perhaps come into tension is that uh, if you're writing theology uh, and you're particularly you're doing it as a believer, then uh, your understanding of Christ is one that um, is not diachronic. It's 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 manifest throughout space and time. There is a kind of truth to who the figure of Christ is that um, transcends history. Whereas if you are uh, writing an account of, of the impact that Christianity and perhaps specifically the figure of, of Christ has had on the imagination of 
um, those who, who, who view him as Lord, then um, that is something obviously that, that evolves. And I would say that um, the extrapolation of the idea of rights from clearly Jesus's teachings is, is, is such an example, as is also, of course, the way in which um, uh, in the centuries that follow the 12th century, the, the, the concept of rights um, abstracts itself from the Christian context that had originally given it birth. And, and, and it may be that the, the, the kind of fertility of the Christian inheritance in constantly evolving, constantly adapting, it is in itself um, a reflection of the way that Jesus in the Gospels is portrayed, because um, there are, for instance, there are the very few Muslims in the Middle Ages who um, who read the Gospels because they tended to regard it as a kind of corrupt, superseded text. But but those who did were startled when they came to it to discover that <laughs> it's one of them said it's just a collection of stories. You know, there is no, uh, there are no laws, there are no no prescriptions, there are no uh, detailed accounts of, of how and why people should behave. And that is something that um, I think does differentiate um, the New Testament from both um, Torah and, and from um, the, the corpus of Muslim scripture, is that the fact that the, the model that Jesus behaves is framed within the story of his own life, within uh, within the parables, as well as these kind of gnomic, occasionally contradictory, uh, often impossible instructions on how people should behave, means that there is a greater scope for people to interpret them, reinterpret them, and to, for it to kind of percolate out in ways that are not strictly dependent on the idea of the figure of Jesus himself. One quote I think it's there more than once in the book is um, from Albert Schweitzer about each individual in each age creates Jesus in accordance with his own character. Do, do you buy that or do, I mean, do you think every interpretation of Jesus is hostage to one's own ideology and beliefs of one's age and that sort of thing? Again, I think that one of the reasons why speaking purely of Jesus as, as a literary portrayal rather than anything more than that, why it is so astonishing is that the sense it gives of a recognizable individual is incredibly strong, incredibly strong. Simultaneously contained within this, um, this portrayal of, of, of a distinctively human person, there is multitudes and there is contradictions. And there is a sense in which every time you think that you have fathomed the mystery of the portrayal of this figure, something comes along to contradict it. So you might say, well, um, what's, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, um, you know, give away your wealth and, and care for the poor. That's, that's surely a, a, a kind of bedrock teaching. But then before you know it, he's, he's sitting there having his, his feet <laughs> <laughs> you know the all the money's been blown on the body shop <laughs> and there it is and Jesus is saying well you know the poor you will always have with you and and that seems to me a kind of it it, it unsettles any attempt to to, to 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 feel that you have plumbed the depths of his mystery and the implication of that in turn is that people's understanding of him can be incredibly various because um essentially you can emphasize what you what you want to emphasize but more than that the the influence of this figure in these four peculiar texts 
has been so profound that it has in turn served to influence how people understand the world that they live in themselves, the cosmos more generally. So there's a constant dialogue between the figure of Christ within the gospels and the and and his interpreters. So in a sense, it's a kind of, you know, it's 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 um, a literary theorist's dream. It's it's a text rewriting the world. And that world, when it's being rewritten, then reinterpreting the figure of Christ. I mean, D Derrida would absolutely love it. He probably did, for all I know. It's fascinating. Since Dominion was published, if I just move on to talking about that a little bit, um, you, you had an article which was shared very widely on, on social media, and no doubt attracted some comment from church leaders um, describing um, church leaders as talking too much like middle managers and not enough about perhaps doctrine and miracles and the, the Christian gospel. Do you think there needs to be a re-engagement with the teaching of Jesus? Do the churches need to be bolder about simply talking about Jesus rather than um, welfare provision or that sort of thing? Well, I, th I think that, um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's there in the, um, the, the tension between the, the articles by Terry Eagleton and uh, A. 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 Wilson, where uh, essentially um, Terry Eagleton is saying that um, you know, Jesus can be interpreted uh, very much as, as someone who would have voted for Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Eagleton is 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 tracing his own Marxist um, convictions to Jesus as the kind of the really the wellspring of it rather than Marx you know he's he's tracing it back to to, to Jesus and it's a kind of materialist interpretation of Jesus I guess uh, Wilson is 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 pointing out that um, nowhere does Jesus kind of offer you know require people to pay a certain tax rate uh, or anything like that and I think that um, in a way, the the um, you know I, I, I said this before about the 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 church in relation to um, to, to healthcare and to education, but I think also in in terms of um, attitudes to, to to welfare more generally, clearly the the way that the welfare state has emerged does reflect you know it's it's Methodism rather than Marx. It's it's it is rooted in kind of ultimately the teachings of Jesus, because it is about the obligations that the rich owe to the poor, and, and indeed the, the, the obligations that the poor can exact from the rich. And I, I can't imagine that our society would have, would feel that kind of sense of obligation as intensely as it does, had it not been marinated in, in, in Christian teachings and assumptions. But again, to, to, to go back to um, the, the, you know, the, the point of the moment where Jesus is happy to allow you know lots of money to be blown on on foot unguents. There is more to Jesus than than caring for the poor. Ultimately, there is a kind of strangeness. There is a a, a supernatural dimension to it that, without which, all of Jesus' teachings on caring for the weak, caring for the needy, caring for the hungry would kind of be irrelevant because it's founded in a, a profoundly supernatural understanding of the cosmos and of humanity's purpose and of humanity's relationship to God. And I, I, I do think that um, there's, there's a sense in which the, the, the clergy and Christians generally, in a way, need to foreground that if, if Christianity, if doctrinal Christianity is to have a future, because Christian assumptions about welfare are, are, are now so deeply, deeply rooted that I don't think we need Christianity for them to continue to thrive. They, they, they are taken for granted. It's something that, that, that all politicians, pretty much every stripe accepts. What the church brings, it's, you know, it's USP, is all the kind of weird stuff. And 
if you regard Jesus just as a kind of enlightened teacher, then ultimately he's no different to philosophers, teachers or whatever that from, from other periods of history, from other regions of the world. But if what the Gospels, the New Testament, the church teaches is true, then the strangeness is so strange that it must surely kind of animate everything that, um, that, that, that Christians say about the figure of Jesus, like kind of Pentecostal fire. And I guess that that all I was saying in that was that that at the moment I I, I feel I'm, I'm getting a lot from um, church leaders that I recognise from politicians and you know newspaper columnists, but I'm not I'm not getting at least in the public space discussions of the figure of Jesus as someone who is more than just a man. That may be very unfair. It, it purely my, my my the sense that I had over the course of lockdown, kind of tuning in and out of of what uh, church leaders were saying. Well, it seems like they're they're listening to that that perspective definitely. Perhaps finally, could I just ask? Um, since Dominion was published, um, I've seen a lot of clergy and you know Christian apologists praising the book. Perhaps seeing it as ammunition in the war against secularism. Um, I wonder if you thought that was a a fair characterization and what. And if so, how comfortable you are in being sort of co-opted to a particular cause? Well, again, I've said this before, but one of the um, one of one of the inspirations for writing Dominion was I wrote a, a, a book um, before Dominion called In the Shadow of the Sword, which was about late antiquity. And it, it ended by looking at the emergence of Islam. And it um, it argued that basically the, the earliest um, sources we have for the life of Muhammad as written by Muslims are, are pretty late. Um, so the equivalent, say, of Gospels written in, in, in the year AD 200, if you're looking at the life of Jesus. And that, that makes it difficult to, to be confident that um, what's being written in AD 100 necessarily tells us very much about the life of someone who lived in the early 7th century. Uh, and this kind of caused quite a, a, an amount of, of, of grief and upset um, from among Muslims. And I remember an event where one Muslim said, well, why are you doing this? You'd never subject your own beliefs and convictions to this kind of questioning. And I felt that that was um, a reasonable point to make, particularly since I'd already begun uh, on the process of, um, of questioning my beliefs, values and convictions. And those, that kind of bundle of my assumptions were essentially liberal and agnostic and I I wanted to find out how far back can I kind of follow the thread of my values and beliefs and where will where, where will following those threads lead me to and Dominion was basically an attempt to put that into practice and to see you know if I follow them back where do they lead me to and they kind of essentially led me back to essentially to Christian theology Christian stories so I I <laughs> I always suspected that Dominion was going to cause more annoyance to, um, to, to, to humanists than to Christians. And that's just the way it is. But I, I w was not writing it with the aim of, of causing um, annoyance or providing succour to any one particular group of, of people. I just wanted to write a perspective on uh, what it, how it is that um, values, assumptions, perspectives that exist in the modern West, how they came into being, which is why the subtitle of the book is The Making of the Western Mind. That's what I wanted to write. I, I do think that uh, perhaps one of the reasons why um, 
why, why Christians have enjoyed, for instance, the um, the argument that the very idea of the secular or or humanism essentially is is Christian, is precisely because, in a way, humanists and atheists have become more evangelical, more committed to preaching good news, and more confident uh, in the way that they do it than many Christians. And so, in a sense, the the Enlightenment myth has replaced the Protestant myth as the kind of the dominant context, the dominant framework for understanding ourselves in, in contemporary British society. So in a sense, the, the kind of the elite myth is, is always the more fun, you know, it's always more enjoyable to go for that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.